0: That's ljsinnercircle.com, or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. This is the Learn Jazz Standards Podcast, episode 93. Welcome to the LJS Podcast, where you get weekly jazz tips, interviews, stories, and advice for becoming a better jazz musician. And now your host, he's a jazz musician, author, and entrepreneur, Brent Bartstra. What is up everybody? My name is Brent. I'm the jazz musician behind the website LearnJazzStandards.com which is a blog and a podcast all geared towards helping you become a better jazz musician. Welcome back if you are a regular listener and if this is your very first time ever listening to the show I want to thank you so much for uh, being here and I've got a special treat for you today. I've got a special guest and that is jazz saxophonist Chad Lefkowitz Brown who lives out here in New York City. And he, uh, you know, he dedicated a little bit of time uh, to talk to us today about bebop, about playing bebop. And not only just that, but talking a little bit about himself, about his career, his development in jazz, all these things which I know for a fact you're going to be really interested in hearing. Today's episode, it's a little bit longer than normal, but it's totally worth it. And I know you're going to love everything Chad has to say. Now, Chad left Lefkowitz Brown, a little quick, uh, just in case you don't know who he is uh, he is an internationally renowned jazz saxophonist uh, and recording artist, and he's played with lots of artists, including Arturo O'Farrell and Clarence Penn. Uh, he's also even appeared with some pop icons like Taylor Swift, Don Henley, and Phillips Phillips, and he's also part of the faculty uh, as a visiting artist for the San Francisco Conservatory of music. I mean, this guy is the real deal. He is a professional jazz musician. He has so much to teach us about his development. And again, our special topic today is bebop. And he has some really cool exercises he's going to share with us and a little bit of his knowledge of, of developing bebop language And there's going to be some examples that he gives out today. So if you're uh, listening on your run, listening at the gym, listening on your commute, and you want to go back later and check out some of the notation for the exercises he's talking about, go to the show notes today. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash episode 93, episode 93. And you can check all this stuff out there, but you're going to uh, get a lot of just listening as well, so no worries on that end. And you can check out Chad at his website, chadlefkowitzbrown.com. That's Chad L-E-F-K-O-W-I-T-Z, brown.com. He has some awesome CDs and some eBooks books for uh, you to check out. Okay, now without further ado, let's get on Chad Lefkowitz-Brown. All right, welcoming on the show today is jazz saxophonist Chad Lefkowitz-Brown. Chad, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, super excited. And you know, of course, not not all of my audience probably knows who you are, but they should know who you are. So why don't you give them the the two-minute Chad Lefkowitz-Brown bio. Tell them what you're all about. For sure,
1: for sure. Yeah, so I started playing when I was uh, uh, very young. My, my dad was a saxophonist and music teacher, and... Uh, Uh, At at first, I actually didn't really like playing that much. Um, uh, I was just more into, you know, sports and video games and stuff like that. But um, then my dad hipped me to Charlie Parker, Um, like kind of right off the bat, which was way over my head at first. But since my dad was a music teacher, he didn't really have any parents to report to, you know, and explain why he was uh, giving kind of, you know, super advanced material to a kid who was just like 9, 10 years old. So he just kind of threw it in front of me and I just inched along you know, day by day, week by week. And eventually it, it ended up working for me. I love Charlie Parker and I got addicted to the to the idea of jazz improvisation. You know, he showed me my blues scales right off the top. And, and so then I was hooked um, and I was very fortunate. I started playing uh, locally, which for me was Elmira, New York. It's upstate New York. I started playing locally uh, uh, gigs with this guy who was like a local jazz legend. His name was George Reed. And he lived in New York for a long time and played with all sorts of people like teddy wilson and and uh even marion mcpartland uh while he was down in new york but just moved out of the city um you know i think uh i think in like the 70s he used to sub for philly joe jones mm-hmm. and, you know, he was always around and doing a lot um but just wasn't necessarily on any um famous landmark records or anything like that moved out of the city you know i think i think in the 70s early 70s um but anyway it was amazing to play with him i was probably like 10 or 11 years old when I started playing with him and really was gigging with him full out by the time he was like 12, 13. And he was like approaching 80. So it was a really fascinating kind of generational um, collaboration. Um, and because of that, I just got such an early start playing. I was really fortunate. And so I went on to a study at the Brubeck Institute um, in California, which was like a two year fellowship program. And then I moved to New York from there, um, started playing with all sorts of uh jazz projects uh, uh mainly i was touring with clarence penn for a few years i started mm-hmm. playing with that latin jazz orchestra which is a multi multi grammy winning group yeah. that i am still in to this day and i also uh kind of jumped right into doing a lot of different pop stuff as well and i toured with uh, taylor swift for a while and i've just done a whole bunch of tv gigs um, playing with various artists on all sorts of uh, late night shows and all that stuff. And uh, now I also I also teach as well. I teach at the San Francisco Conservatory in California. So I go back and forth. I spend uh, a few days there uh, uh, each month, pretty much. Um, and, and it's a brand new program out there. I'm really excited to be part of it. And uh, I teach on Skype a lot as well. So uh, that kind of uh, encompasses my, my uh, activities at present.
0: Awesome. Yeah. You're like the man, you're like the ultimate uh, professional musician, dude. That's like the you're the real deal. Um. So yeah, awesome. So it sounds like you're it sounds like you, you your dad played music. And that's kind of how you got really hooked into it. And I love I love how you describe uh, just being super into video games. And you know, right. <laughs> that's like our generation right there. But anyways, yeah. so, so it sounds like you got that early start just from your your, your family. That's right
1: yeah I was fortunate that you know music was always playing uh, when I was growing up, even if you know I mentioned I didn't really like saxophone when I first started playing. I really enjoyed music and it was just always around and um once my dad was able to kind of find the right approach uh, to teaching me, that's that's when it it really um, took off and he didn't even teach me that much honestly um you know i was I was i was kind of self-taught in a lot of ways, you know getting lessons from your dad is is hit hit or miss a right time. right there's there's a lot of people just avoid that a lot of musicians avoid teaching that kids. <laughs> um so right. yeah uh, but it, it it worked out and i think that's something that i really take into you know my uh uh pedagog uh, uh uh approach today and that's that you know i think each each person needs to learn differently and you you kind of have to find the right way to teach each individual, for sure.
0: That's so true. I, I couldn't agree with you more than that. Yeah, everybody has a different learning style, and different people come come across music or connect with music in, in in different ways. And it's all about finding for yourself what those are, and and it's also about finding the in your case finding the right people to kind of guide you and, and be a mentor, is there, I know you mentioned a lot of things earlier about your development, but is there a specific moment or string of, of events or or particular people even outside of your father who really um, kind of like took that interest or, or or that level of your musicianship to the next level, like really helped you guide, guide you along down the, the, the that path or?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, as a kid, it was mainly that guy, George, just because getting to play with someone who was really kind of part of the jazz tradition, not, not in that he was a famous name in the jazz tradition, but in that yeah. he was, he was, he was around and, and played with so many people. And, and, you know, Blakey was one of his heroes and he saw Blakey, you know, and, and again, like sub for Philly Joe all the time. And so, you know, just something about playing with him, there's kind of a, a this, this spiritual um, understanding of the, the music that I think I was able to gain a little bit. Of course it's, it's, you know, it's, it's um, just the surface of what a lot of people have been able to experience a lot of what the older guys went through, you know, living through that time and everything. But yeah, I was able to get a lot of out of that, you know, um, and, and a lot of it, I'm actually still learning now, or, or it's really hitting me now. It's like, oh, man, like, George showed me Don Bias back in the day, for instance. And Mm i you know, it, it was just like, yeah, cool, he's great, you know, and then I went back to listening to Bird, and, like, now it's just, like, Don Bias to me is, like, just the best saxophonist ever, you know, so so there's there's a lot, I wish he was still alive today, you know, because I wish I could call him up and say, like, like, hey, hey, you're right, Don Bias is the best, you know, stuff like that, I, I didn't really fully mature yeah. badly until after he's passing, I'm sure I'm still maturing, but, you know what I mean, and and then as as a professional, I'd probably be mainly playing with Clarence Penn, just because he yeah. he's playing you know everybody from Michael Brecker when he was alive to, to Chris Potter now all the time and and so I I toured with him uh, for a few years um, and you know played played on one of his albums and and that was always an honor in itself just you know the fact that that I was I was playing with him because he had played with you know he had played with and continues to play with the best saxophonists in the world plays with Mark Turner all the time that's another one um, and yeah so so he. Uh, um, and he also toured with Betty Carter. And so everybody who plays with Betty Carter, they typically bring as a leader, they bring um, uh, a very specific idea of what they want in the music um, to their their own music or or just to the, the music that they're arranging. Um, and, and a lot of my experience with Clarence was playing his arrangements of Monk tunes. And you know, Betty Carter was known as uh, as as being, I guess, very very strict, um, and she'd really push her band. And you know, Clarence, as a leader, I think um, he always had a very specific idea of what he wanted the music to sound like, and we would have to kind of jump on board and go with that. And um, you know, he he uh, he always wanted there to be a lot of energy, but he also he also wanted there to be a lot of dynamics um you know so it it was a process the first couple of years just getting all of that music together was very difficult music um and you know uh uh it just kept on getting better and better and you know i, I feel like so so many times in jazz when a project happens it just kind of lasts for a few months you do the record maybe you do some follow-up gigs and that's that and the band doesn't really grow this band played together for like you know four five years i think um and so professionally that was really my first experience growing with the band and getting to consistently play with with the project and seeing how many forms it could take and and see how the same music could get better and better and better and better even if it's just a jazz arrangement over, right. over years so that that was special to me as, as a professional that sticks out for sure
0: yeah I mean it's amazing too how uh, you know just hearing you talk like you know there's so much there's so much time put into becoming a better jazz musician, a better musician in general. And, you know, the, the improvement that happens individually uh, is separate, but also together with that improvement that can happen with other musicians. I know I can relate as well when you're playing with a band or a group of musicians uh, constantly, how you can grow together and, and learn how to play together better. And and just on top of that, just how uh, specifically with jazz or improvised music, how much flexibility there is and different possibilities there are, you know, even if you're playing the same arrangements right over and over again there's always something new there's always something fresh uh that can happen and so you know it's uh, it's really cool to hear you talk about that and uh you know man for, first of all like you know just so the, the audience knows i mean you are a, a, an awesome player uh you, you you really you really know how to play your instrument i think the first time one the first time i heard you play uh i think i had just moved to new york i think this was around 2010 is that some club in Harlem, uh, like a late night jam session? I don't even think I played on the jam session. I think I was just, you know, I was, I was just kind of showing up, kind of checking out the scene at first. And I think there were some heavy cats in there, like uh, Gerald Clayton was in there. But I remember you came up and, and started playing, and you were going to the the new school for uh, jazz and contemporary music in New York City at the time. Right. And I heard you play, and I was like. Damn, this guy can play, and uh, and and so it's just very inspiring. I'm I'm happy to have you on the show today. I mean, I, I'm I'm excited to introduce uh, my audience to you and and your music. Uh, you got some great albums out. You I mean you you teach, uh, mm-hmm. you do all this stuff, and and so I really appreciate you just sharing your story and uh get getting to know you today and and sharing some of that because I really do believe that our stories are so important to how we develop as a musician and, and we can all learn from hearing each other 's stories on these things now you 're a busy guy, so uh how much time do you have to practice and when you are practicing what are you regularly doing
1: yeah for sure um yeah, yeah practicing can be tough um um when you 're really you know in in the professional world and you know i'm i 'm just constantly booked these days um but uh, what I've started to do, um, as opposed to um, trying to get in a good practice session every day, because that's just not realistic for me, unfortunately, now, a lot of times now, it's just maybe like 15 or 20 minutes of like, you know, as sax players would know, like going through some reads or something like that, you know, just doing like a little warm up just for sound or whatever. Um, uh, so, yeah, so my practicing has become less daily. And it's become more like, oh, I'm going to take Wednesday off in a couple weeks and that's going to be my day to shed, you know? So like right. now it's maybe, maybe one, one day a week or sometimes I'll even take a week off um, where it'll be like, all right, this is going to be my week where I just, I practice and, and get a lot of stuff done. Uh,
0: and, you know, otherwise,
1: uh, other than, you know, the the things that I'm doing professionally um, uh, as a sideman or, or teaching or, or studio sessions, any of that stuff. Um, so yeah, I think my, my practicing uh, uh, regimen has definitely changed um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, since when I was a student. When I was a student, I would I would try to practice, uh, you know, a good two to four hours a day for sure. A lot yeah. of times, two, you know, they there are the stories about people who do ten or something yeah. like that. that's that's amazing. You know, I uh, I don't think it's necessary. Like I think you can be a world class jazz musician. And never practice more than two hours a day, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of of, you know, being focused and over time making sure that that you're uh, that you're chipping away at a lot of different things. I personally, I always say this, I personally don't believe in practice routines. Okay in the, that you practice every day, you practice the same idea to get better at this idea over and over again i i think it's it's okay to practice have a practice routine in the broad sense of i work on a transcription every day i work on technique every day i work you know something like that but i think some people get really stuck into this thing of practice routines and that they get out their horn or their instrument or whatever and they the first half hour of their practice session is always the same every day or maybe you know their first hour for brass i think that's a separate thing i think for for brass instrument it's 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 From what I've gathered, it's very important to have a very specific routine. But for other instruments, I think we don't necessarily have that same um, issue with our chops, um, you know, having to go through this process every time we get the instrument out. And so I think a lot of times people spend too much time practicing the same thing and then they're just not chipping away at the endless possibilities of, of practicing. There are so many different exercises, so many different things to do. And you don't need to perfect an exercise, I believe, before mm-hmm. you move from it. A lot of times I have my students do an exercise just in a couple different keys or a few different keys, memorize it just in two, three different keys, then move on to the next thing. Then we come back to that exercise that we only learned in a few different keys a couple months later. And at that point, they have to relearn it. They have to go through the process again. They have to get back in their ear. Then we add it on a few keys and then so over the course of a few months or a year, you know, we've learned a, a few different exercises, but not not one at a time, uh, because I find it sticks much better at the end of the year. Um, you know, so th- this is just my opinion. But I, I you know, the, the way I teach this is also the way that I now practice this sort of thing. I don't necessarily, you know, over the course of a few weeks, master this one exercise. But sure. over a year, I might master five or six, you know, something like that.
0: And I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that just because, you know, I, I get emails uh, from uh, students that are in my courses, 30 Days to Better Jazz Playing, which is a jazz practicing course and uh, the new ear training course, How to Play What You Hear. And they're, they're emailing me and asking me, ah, I don't know, should I move on to this next lesson now? I mean, I feel like I got the material, but, you know, I don't feel like I've mastered it. And I think it's really important what you said is that uh, the mastery is, is almost not the the point when we're talking about individual things we're talking about uh, uh, when we're talking about our jazz education or musical education we're talking about this culminative uh, approach here where we're we're learning material we're, we're grabbing little bits and pieces It's like learning a language you're not going to be able to internalize every single thing you hear every single word or sentence you're hearing perfectly uh, and and then never forget it ever again it doesn't always work that way sometimes it's in a culmination and being able like you said you know attacking different aspects of your musicianship. I think that's a real good piece of advice and, and and not to get too hung up on this perfectionism. So thanks for sharing that. That's a really great tip. Now, I want to jump into our main event today, which is talking about bebop and, and bebop lines and playing bebop in our jazz improvisation, um, And which I know that you're more than qualified to talk about and especially you were talking about how much of a Charlie Parker fan you are. I think we'll just start with those who just have no idea. Like they might even get confused by bebop and jazz and what the correlation is and what the difference is. Uh, what what exactly is bebop?
1: <laughs> Great question. So, well, bebop, uh, uh, you know, as I say, was invented by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. So they they were just writing all this music. There was no label for it. Um, and analysis of bebop, you know, is, is always a funny thing because it's always just putting putting names to to things, you know, just like counterpoint, you know, you know, Bach was not thinking about counterpoint because there wasn't that term counterpoint, you know, that was, that was something that they came to label after the fact. Um, A lot of bebop analysis has been labeled after the fact. um, And that hasn't even necessarily been officially labeled in in books and jazz theory classes and stuff like that. But bebop itself, the genre name was, uh, did exist back then and I guess the story is that they had this tune uh, uh, that went like this, and um, reeds drying out over here. Sorry, <laughs> They Had this tune, uh, you know, that went like that, and uh, people would request it at their gigs. They would go, they would be like, hey, this, play that, uh, bebop, 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 and and so that tune became known as bebop. And somehow the genre as a whole after that became known as bebop. I'm not sure how, how that came to be, but, uh, I know that's how that tune came to be. And, um, um, that's how the, you know, eventually the genre became labeled as bebop. Um, now from a more theoretical standpoint, pretty much what happened was in swing, you know, improvising started with just really embellishing melodies Mm -hmm. and, you know, outlining chord changes super clearly Maybe at, outlining some uh, um, some chromatic harmony within the chord changes, you know, um, uh, like uh, uh, but a lot of lines would be like like here's a lesser line, a lesser young line. So there's certainly some chromaticism, right. uh, chromatic approach notes, but it's it's a little bit more arpeggio based and diatonic. Um, and then bebop just became pretty much a lot more, um, chromatic and intricate as far as the harmonies would go. Um, uh, but a lot of the chromaticism was still very melodic chromaticism. It's not like it was random non-diatonic notes like this. You know, it's not that type of non-diatonic material. And it's not the type of chromatic, chromaticism where it would be like, right yeah you know stuff that that can be really hip um and and and, uh you know there's there's a place for that stuff and that's those are all totally other techniques to practice but the first thing is always being able to use chromaticism in a melodic context and that's what really happened with bebop so lines like
0: yeah, that's like textbook right there. Like everything you just played was like, uh, you know, someone write that down and you know, sell that in an ebook or something. You know what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> and and um, you know, so so a lot of a lot of again a lot of the analysis that we've added to it wasn't something that Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie was thinking about, but, uh, but, uh, still for some people, it can really help them wrap their minds around it. And more importantly, it just helps us, um, create material to practice that I fully believe was similar to what Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were practicing. They weren't writing books, but they were certainly practicing all of the- apparently Charlie Parker practiced 10 to 15 hours a day. And so, um, you know, a lot of the things that I teach are, kind of my attempts at I bet Charlie Parker was practicing this because he wasn't transcribing himself he didn't have that luxury
0: <laughs> Right so,
1: so we can only kind of take stabs at figuring out what he was practicing in order to in order to be able to play the content he played
0: Right he was a huge innovator you know I mean I would say that like bebop it, as the language or the dialect if you will of jazz is kind of it's still uh it's still the modern Baseline uh, of 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 the music of of the of modern jazz music and improvised music that's going on in the jazz realm. It, bebop is still that fundamental language that kind of emerged out of that time. And one thing that I think is interesting too is that um, a lot of the bebop heads that Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie wrote their solos basically by themselves. I'm thinking about like Confirmation, Anthropology, uh, all these different tunes. I mean, it, it's it's interesting how I mean they're really just I mean, they're very virtuosic and angular. I mean, they're just, they're basically solos, right? I mean, would you agree with me?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Organized solos. Yeah, 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 for sure. The heads themselves are are studies in, in, in their own. Yeah, for sure.
0: So if if, uh, if there's someone who's just like okay um, you know you talked a little bit about chromaticism some of the, so that's one of the characteristics of bebop and they're just like, okay well what, what's something that I can start working on or, or practicing some maybe some techniques that you know of course you know the last last month in the podcast we did talked a lot about transcribing solos and how to do that properly and learning the language by ear and all that is so important so obviously that's the first place we go we go to the recordings and we start mm-hmm. learning this music by ear because it's a language it's how we're going to get it but what are right. maybe some uh, techniques or approaches that we can kind of conceptualize some of this bebop language with
1: right for sure for sure and so you know i know that you already talked about the the transcription so i won't stick on that so so long but you know what i what
0: yeah, go I for always, it though
1: you know just real quick what i always say to horn players especially is there there are a few mistakes that people always make with transcription because you're absolutely right transcription. You know they're 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 not necessarily the right ways to do that do it but the ways that there are ways that make it more beneficial sure um, and one one mistake that people always make especially horn players is they don't learn the chord changes to the song first and they don't learn um how the the these monophonic lines um function with the harmony you know i have so many students when they first come to me they tell me some of the transcriptions they've learned they play me the transcription i'm like all right can you play the tune and when we we play the tune and it's clear that they actually don't know the chord changes to the song. Mm-hmm. So the biggest mistake that horn players in particular make, um, since we're not chordal instruments. Um, yeah. So I that was, that was the main, main thing. I really just want, wanted to mention that, which you probably mentioned, um, in, in your last podcast anyway, but, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say it myself. No, sure. Um,
0: I'm glad you did. Yeah, sure. For sure.
1: And so, uh, uh, then, uh, uh, you know, getting away from the transcriptions a little bit, which are so so important. But yeah, for people, it's not like they learn twenty transcriptions and voila, um, uh, uh, they can play jazz or they can play bebop. Um, uh, and and the other things you have to memorize it. That's that's super important. So many so many people don't memorize the transcriptions, um,
0: as opposed to like reading a Charlie Parker solo out of the Omni book or or something like that.
1: I actually believe that it's okay to read transcriptions. Absolutely, okay. Especially when you're developing and i find that actually to be a common theme among some of like the best um musicians i've I've worked with is that that like when they first started or even you know like all the way through their studies they they actually would read the solos just the important thing is memorizing it because that and eventually i think it's it's really important yeah to to just listen to the recording and do it yourself maybe write it down if you want but but so many people i think make the mistake of and again this is just my opinion so many people just write it down and never memorize it or um they read it and never memorize it um and to me the important thing is the memorization and the harmony you know okay.
0: great so so memorizing that is that's a really cri- so for you that's a really critical thing so that's that's really great awesome
1: totally um and then down the road learning it in different keys you know maybe we could get get to that briefly later today because i think that's that's super important but um but a kind of a monumental task for a lot of people um So anyway, uh, now moving away from the transcription stuff, uh, uh, you know, into some more mechanical approaches, uh, because this is stuff that hasn't really been written in any books from what I can find. You know, I think people just haven't really figured out how to really, you know, do a lot of mechanical practice for bebop. And, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons is is because we don't know what Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were practicing, Uh, for instance, what scale exercises they were doing. Um, But... Uh, jumping into some of the things that I do, um, one are uh, uh, approach note exercises. So essentially, the bebop scale, which a lot of people listening to this might be familiar with already, but I'll, I'll go over it just to make sure. Yeah, the sure. Beb- go.
0: Yeah, go over it just to make sure for those who don't know about the bebop scale.
1: Totally. So the bebop scale is essentially just a scale where we add one approach note, one chromatic approach note. Um, if you have a, a dominant chord, there's F seven. And you look at the Mixolydian scale, which is the mode that, you know, pairs with a dominant chord. Right. Um, and you add one chromatic at the top. That's a bebop scale. The reason why we add the chromatic at the top for the bebop scale is when we start on the root, if we add the chromatic anywhere else, the chord tones aren't following on the on the strong fall. So if we add it here, then all of a sudden we're hitting the four.
0: Right. Know? And just, yeah. just just to verbalize that really quick, so um, so you see, space off the Mixolydian, right? That's what you said, and, and the Mixolydian is, is sort of like a way to think about it is like a major scale. It's not the way to think about modes necessarily, but you can think of it as playing a major scale but with a flat seven rather, rather than a major seven, correct?
1: Right, right, totally, totally. And then um,
0: where's that chromatic note in there?
1: Yeah, and then the chromatic note. Thanks, thanks for making sure that we're thorough here. The chromatic note is uh, 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 in between the flat seven, which is diatonic and mixolydian and the root. So essentially it's the major seven, but I think it's good to think about it as being a chromatic note because where in mixolydian, there is no major seven you know, um, in the tonality. It's just a chromatic passing note from the diatonic seven, which is the dominant seven to right. the root. Um, and so essentially the bebop scale is just a scale with a chromatic approach note. Um, now, the bebop scale can can be great, and you can do a lot with it. You can improvise with literally just the bebop scale, and it can sound awesome. For instance. Now, for me, you know, like I almost tripped in the beginning because it's hard for me to just use
0: that one. Right. Right. That's <laughs> tough. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually a good practice to actually try to not do anything else. But, yeah, that's tough.
1: It totally is. Yeah. Um, and so, so, it can be really useful to then, you know, uh, say, okay, now I want to get past just the bebop scales. I wouldn't honestly, honestly, take too much time just obsessing over the bebop scale uh, before getting on to adding other uh, approach note exercises. So um, one that I do is we go up diatonically. Here's, you know, on F7. We go up diatonically, and then down diatonically and we connect to the next degree of the scale with a chromatic approach note. So essentially we have a diatonic shape that just does this. It goes one, two, three, four, five on each scale degree. Okay. Stepping, stepping up the scale here. So that's kind of part one.
0: So it's but like then, one, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, like that?
1: Four, five, six, yeah, three, four, five, six, seven. But for some people, for me, it's easier to just think about it as one, two, three, four, five on each scale degree. So it almost becomes like a modal shape, um, you know. But but you know, different strokes for different folks. It just depends depends on how you want to think of, think of it. Uh, but yeah, it is it is all connected. There are no skipping notes. That's the other thing that some people like to think about. They like to think about skips and steps. These are all steps. We just skip down to that that next scale degree. Now, so that's the diatonic part. Now. The part with the chromatic approach note is when we go back down. So essentially we're going just back down to that next degree, but in order to do that in a way that rhythmically works, if we don't have the chromatic approach noted, that next degree doesn't fall on the downbeat. We've got one and two and three and four and. So if we add one chromatic approach now, 1, and 2, and 3, and 4, and 1, then it falls on the downbeat. This is exactly how they you know, theorized the bebop scale. They said, OK, if we go 1, and 2, and 3, and 4, and we fall on the root, you know, that's just mixolydian without a chromatic, then we fall on the root on and of 4. But if we add a chromatic, 1, and 2, and 3, and 4, and 1, then right. great, we're landing on the downbeat. So same idea here, we're just going back down back down connect there now here to get to the third we don't have any room because it's a half step you know the way a scale is spaced we don't have a half step in between the two diatonic notes anymore so we just dip below so now we've got we dip below the third now we're back just above
2: so we're just adding
1: a chromatic approach to the end here we've got the other part where we have to dip below and that's it okay so, cool yeah and I'll play it on on sax
0: sweet yeah let me hear it awesome that's so cool
1: so really great exercise especially as you get into the harder keys to really get the 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 nice approach notes under your fingers you know for instance here would be concert f sharp my a flat i'm just going to try to play it pretty fast you know, so this this is an exercise, but it sounds kind of like a line in a solo. You know, you can go. Right. You know, I did. You know, uh, I just added an arpeggio at the end. And I went up to like the thirteenth, and then I did a chromatic brush note going down to the, the fourth, and then I did the arpeggio down or resolving on the on the root. You know, so you don't necessarily want this ultimately think about improvising you know in in such a theoretical way in the moment but i think it's totally okay to think it through like this when you're practicing and and i think i think that charlie parker and dizzy Gillespie probably thought about this stuff i think they must have been practicing exercises like this in order to get it under their fingers because again they didn't have themselves to transcribe you know they transcribed the people who came before them for sure um, but you know, to get to this stuff, I think they they had to be thinking about things theoretically, even if maybe they didn't write it down or write a book about it.
0: Right. Totally. Now, as far as so that's a great exercise, we're gonna have that in the show notes today. So feel free to go check that out if you want to kind of see what that looks like a little better. But yep. as far as connecting. Uh, chords together what are some uh, what what are maybe some you're talking about approach notes here and uh, actually if you could just quickly define approach notes just in case anybody that passed over anybody's head there and what are some ways we can use approach notes um, further to Mm -hmm. connect chords together
1: totally so um, you know uh, approach notes the way I think of them are are usually just chromatic and and this gets into the the fact that I don't think there are any books on this yet Um, you know and uh so it hasn't necessarily been decided officially like what the definition of an approach note is, is in jazz. To me, an approach note is just any note that approaches a chord tone. Um and you know, it makes the most sense to really label it an approach note when it's chromatically
0: approaching the yeah. otherwise the target note.
1: Yeah, otherwise it's just something diatonic. Um so so you know, if if we're playing an F seven, and uh, we're going to the third, that would be just diatonically approaching it. So maybe these are all diatonic approach notes. I'm not sure. It depends on what jazz theorists decide to
0: <laughs> Right, right.
1: But one thing uh, for sure is that these would be chromatic approach notes.
0: Right. So you're coming from. Uh, above and then an approach uh, you're doing some chromatic, chromatic notes above and then a, a half step approach from the top to res- to resolve, correct? And that was to the third? Is that yeah. It is?
1: yeah, exactly. So this was like starting on the fifth, it was going chromatically down to the fourth so you could say it's it's one chromatic approach note it, it, There there's no right or wrong way to, to analyze it, but you could say it's a chromatic approach note from the fifth to the fourth and then a chromatic approach note below the third and then you land on the third
0: Right, and, and some people would call that technique where you're approaching from above and then below with a chromatic approach. They would call that enclosure, right? I mean, again, that's an, another one of those inter- terminologies that a lot of people throw around, but I don't know if it's like an official one or not.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, there just don't seem to be any books on this yet. But uh, but yeah, that's that's totally what has become known as an enclosure. And and you know, I think absolutely, Bird and Diz were practicing this, but I think also they didn't have a name for it um uh just like Bach didn't have a name for counterpoint it was just what sounded good to him and he figured it out and and practiced it I think it was the same thing with bird and did so you know a cool um a cool exercise another one would be to just practice enclosure um you know going up each degree of the scale so doing that same enclosure shape essentially we had the uh scale degree above it you know, it was like an enclosure moving down. Um, well, that one would have been actually an enclosure moving down a third. So like if we have F7, here's here's going to be the shape that we're moving down. We're moving down a, a third. You know, those A, F, uh, B flat, G, C, uh, A, you know, and then we're moving down a third using an enclosure. So we're going to use that same enclosure we did. Um, uh, let's see. This one. This one will function a little differently though because of the shape of the scale. It always depends on where you are in the scale. You always have to have two different options. i will get to that in a second. But here's gonna be our first option. Moving down a third, we're gonna go three, two, and then chromatic around the one. Okay. Now we're gonna do that same thing. So it's it's gonna be, you know, moving down the third, we'll have, you know, four, three, chromatic around the two. Then here, our second note isn't gonna be diatonic because the spacing is a minor third as opposed to a major third. So now it's now it's back to our old one. Now it's the second one. So pretty much we have we have two different enclosures. as when we're going down a major third, and it ends up being diatonic, diatonic, and chromatic around when mm-hmm. we're or when the spacing is a minor third, like from the fourth to the second, then it ends up being in this case, diatonic, diatonic still wrapping chromatically around. So that one's actually the same in a way, but over here, because of the spacing of the scale, we wouldn't do diatonic, diatonic, because then we run out of notes. So here we actually go chromatic to the fourth, and then wrap chromatically around it. Awesome. So, Yeah, so the idea is just it, it can be really, really valuable to um, practice enclosures uh, going up a scale.
0: Um, can you play in your sax really quick?
1: Yeah, totally, totally. So, again, we're going up F mixolydian.
0: F mixolydian, okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And just to reiterate uh, to the audience today, I mean, this, this is all stuff, this is all, you know, outside of the, the, the ear side of this learning solos and all stuff, this is all, these are all technical little things that can help us conceptualize this language, right? You know, this chromatic and approach tones and enclosures, all this stuff, all these little exercises are just ways to get uh, under your fingers or whatever you're using to play your instrument to just, you know, to just get this, these ideas into your head. And so these are actually some really great exercises to start um, doing this. And we're gonna close it pretty soon, but uh, is there any last things you want to say about developing uh, bebop language, Chad?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, w- I think probably the only thing that I didn't mention is just really important to sing all this stuff.
0: Ah, just to- love it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, because if we're just playing it, um it's gonna it's gonna be frustrating as people try to learn it in new keys and it never really sticks and it doesn't come out in their plane. Um, if they never sing it, um, you know, that's, that's not going to happen because it's just not getting into their ears. You know, one of the reasons why we play the things that we play is because they're the things that we can hear, the things that are in our ears. So a lot of times if we feel like the stuff that we're playing isn't hip, it's because it's the stuff that is in our ears isn't hip. You know, so really important to sing this stuff, you know, and check yourself. Make sure the intonation is pretty good. It doesn't need to be perfect, but you just need to make sure you're really getting the note. Then you really hear it against the chord getting to that point where you can play the chord on the piano or guitar and and sing right through the whole exercise that's going to make it much easier to learn and i I try to apply that to everything learning transcriptions learning yeah
0: yeah Sure. And just and just to reiterate, I mean, my audience has heard me talk a lot about this, but just to reiterate, what, what singing really is doing is it's it's ensuring that you've internalized the information. It's ensuring <laughs> that you actually truly know it because you could play the notes and get it under your muscle memory. But by actually singing it, that means that, you know, what you heard is is up there now. The only thing that you have to do now is transfer it to your instrument, and that's right. that that's exactly what you're talking about, Chad. Um, so this has been all this information has been completely golden. Thanks so much for just absolutely unleashing uh, a ton of really valuable stuff. And um, excited, we'll again will have some of those exercises up in the show notes. You want to check those out today. And now, Chad, I want to uh, you know whatever we can do to you know my audience to uh, lead them to. To to your stuff, your lessons, whatever it is, is there anything that we can send the audience to today?
1: Yeah, totally. Well, um, hope you'll all check out uh, my last album. It's called Onward and uh, features Randy Brecker on a couple tracks. It Was a blast. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that one. And uh, yeah, I I, uh, I have a, a transcription book of uh, uh, that Ron Fix wrote. Uh, that's up on on my website, which is transcriptions of a bunch of the videos and recordings that i've recorded over the past few years and that that one it's a real honor for me to to have released I, I flip through it and it's always really surreal for me seeing my own solos um i never uh i never assign my own transcriptions and lessons for sure <laughs> but
0: uh <that> was, <laughs> you're a humble dude you're a real humble dude <laughs>
1: yeah, right well i don't think that really says much <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thanks man but uh some some people uh, do seem to, to to see the value in in not just transcribing the legends. You know, I transcribed uh, Brecker, of course, and Potter growing up and stuff like that. You know, so for anyone who's who's interested in and in, and uh, learning the solos that I've played, that's that's up on my website as well.
0: So, awesome. So I'd highly suggest everyone to go get that book and also go get Chaz's album on. Where do you think you have another album on there too? Now, where exactly can they go to find that?
1: For sure. Yeah, that's that's up on iTunes and there are physical copies available on my website as well.
0: Okay, and your website is chadlefkowitz and it's I, dash brown.com, right?
1: Exactly. Yep.
0: yep. All dot right. chadleftquits-brown.com. Now Chad, I want to thank you so much for being here today again for teaching us these lessons and uh, just getting uh, just sharing your your knowledge with my audience. I really appreciate it. I know that they appreciate it too. So look forward to having you back on the show again sometime soon.
1: For sure. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, that's all for today's show. I want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Again, you can check out the show notes with some of these musical examples from today at learnjazzstandards.com forward slash episode 93. And be sure to check out our special guest, Chad Lefkowitz Brown's website at brown browncom now, as I always ask at the end of this show, if you've got some value at today's podcast episode, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening service and leave a rating and a review that helps other people find this show and uh, keep helps us keep producing this podcast. So thank you so much uh, in advance for taking a little bit of time to do that. Now, I want to thank you so much for being a listener, and I hope to see you back next week on episode 94.